I'm actively looking for ways to communicate. You're dealing with a faith-based person here, right? You're dealing with someone who takes that to heart, who literally will take that to the grave. You're dealing with someone that puts ethics and their faith above all things. And I see it as a value add. So I'm looking for ways to communicate with individuals. Yeah, yes, I'm Catholic. How can leaders introduce transcendent truths into the everyday aspects of business life in the popular culture? In this episode, real estate entrepreneur, business and civic impact luminary Rodrigo Gonzalez shares his vision of how leaders across disciplines can incorporate the powerful values of faith into the secular world. It's on our shoulders. It's time for us to take the baton from our Irish brothers and our, and our Italian brothers and the Polish brothers. And it's, it's our time to step into the role as the leaders of the church in America, right? As the as the majority of the church in America, and that comes with a lot of work and responsibility attached to it. We each carry with us a unique spiritual mission, one we sometimes spend our whole lives discovering, in which God uses our unique gifts to ignite the world for generations to come. This is Living the Call. Rodrigo, God bless you, brother. Welcome to the show. Likewise, brother. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, I can't make a, I can't start this show without at least touching on the fact that you're a pivotal part for why we're even doing this show. No. I mean, you know, we met, it's like all things, right? In the kind of like spiritual dimension, you have this conversation with somebody, there's no coincidences. Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, call, then we're talking about the, the future of call, which we'll talk about, then we're talking about the podcast and you know, you've been in a, in a position of leadership, not just on your own, but within the context of the organization that's behind this podcast. And without you, like we, we wouldn't even be here right now. So I just want to give you first, you know, thanks for that. That's a lot of credit, man, but I'll take it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> exactly. No, thank you, brother. I mean, everything that you're doing here, um, we're, we're indebted to you and, and we're blessed to have you. How do you um, think that, I mean, when you explain the, the mission of call, the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders, of, of which you're the chairman. Um, and of course, you have your own business and your own practices that, that we'll get into. But when you explain the mission of Call, what is it? Like, why should people care? I think there are, there, there's two answers to that. The first is there are, there's a boilerplate, very well thought out, very discussed um, mission of Call, which is to Roughly, I'm paraphrasing here, roughly speaking, create a community of Catholic leaders where they pray together, um, they grow together, and, and they um, form their faith together, right? My personal mission and one that I think I want to dare call at the national level to really take on is to ensure that there is a strong, healthy, vibrant church for America in the, in the future, mm -hmm. right? By way of uh, Latino participation in our church, right? I don't think a lot of people, we've talked about it somewhat on this show, but understand the the importance of what you just said, right? Because look, we're both business people. We kind of look out and we see maybe a market, we see an opportunity. Mm -hmm. We think oftentimes in terms of consumers and vendors and things like that. And we can never reduce the church to that. But there are some lessons we can take from that sort of secular mind view or worldview about how we view the church in the United States. I mean, can you expand a little bit when you say the future of the church in America, like how the how does that intersect with what what you're talking about with what call does? Right. There's two um, very important 
statistics that that we hold on to dearly, and it's not because they're great; it's because, frankly, they're terrifying. One is, uh, as as you know, and and some people, a lot of people know, that the future of the Catholic Church follows along the lines of what the future largest minority in America looks like, and that's largely Latino, right, or, or descendants of Latin American countries or immigrants of Latin American countries. So we're looking at a church that is going to be on the church side, the majority of the church in the next 30, 40 years will be of Latino participation, right? And, and Latino membership uh, to an extent. We also understand that the church in America has a largely dwindling um, membership base or attendance base, and that Latinos are leaving the church at a faster clip than a lot of other groups, right? So that leads us to a trajectory of a future of the church with a smaller, largely Latino church, right? If that is, if I now connect that to what you mentioned as applying some marketing or some business components to it, I know that there's a market, the market's dwindling, right? So if I want to uh, take my mission, i.e. take my product to market, I need to identify and I need to go after that demographic. It also would benefit us from a business standpoint to amplify that market oh. right, as much as possible. Oh. So it's not so much that we want to target a smaller majority. We want to grow that market as much as humanly possible. And it's, and it's the future too. That's right. Right. I mean, when you, you everything you just said is exactly right on uh, in terms of today. But when you look at, you know, where we're headed it's not like, you know, there's some point in the future where this looks like it's, 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 it's decreasing, but in fact, it's going in the other direction. So you would look at it, you could say this is an investment in the future, but, um, but the, the level of urgency is, is so much there. And I, I confess that's what I first attracted me to, to call. When we, you and I first met, when was that? Was that like five years ago? Five maybe? years ago, man. Yeah. Wow. Maybe plus, plus, I know. Maybe plus five years, maybe six years. But when we first met and you were explaining to me what this was, you know, as a kind of a pitch for me to get involved and to join, I never even heard of it. I mean, I never even thought like, well, it makes so much sense that you're, it seems so strategic for me to go, oh, well, we want to advance the church's mission. And we think that I, you know, approaching people who are in, in, in positions of leadership is important. Mm -hmm. And when we look at like who we want to activate the most, the most strategically important segment is this Latino kind of population. So to me, it was like a revelation in a way, but like how do people respond in your in your mind when you when they hear this do they kind of come to that same moment of like wow this is incredible or is it or does it depend on the person and is it very based on what you know where they where they see the world from? i think it's an interesting question it varies on the person it varies on which generation this person comes from as well right you have um oh, i want to get into this yeah, yeah right so you have some of the older latino generations that they say yeah we get it we understand why it's happening um, they've been around the block. They've been through cycles of this, you know, over the lifespans, and 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 they understand that there is a need uh, to kind of stop the bleeding. You you talk to some of the younger generation Latinos, and there are those that are on fire. Frankly, I see in their eyes a tremendous need and thirst for something like this, right? Mm. To find purpose in, in what otherwise is a very diluted type of society for them, with oversaturated with a lot of things being thrown at them, right? And then you have non-Latinos, and it's interesting, non-Latinos for a long time with Call, they, we could have done, Call could have done a better job communicating um, to them what it was we were trying to do, because for a long time they would say, well, you know what, I love what you guys are doing, but I'm not Latino, right? Now it's a very easy response with, we're here to, 
if the majority of the church in the future is going to be largely Latinos, we are thereby not only saving the church for us, we're also saving it for you, mm. right? It, it's just a more robust, more active, more uh, well-attended and, and well-versed church for our future. And now they're starting to react to that. I feel that now our, our membership is not exclusive to being Latino, but you have to understand that you're signing up to help a demographic that is has been strategically selected um, as the future of the church. Yeah. Right? And that's who we're going after. The first image that I got when you said um, that it applies, you know, more broadly than just Latino is almost like, you know, the image of the of the ship of the, the church being the bark of Peter. Right. And it's kind of crossing this ocean on, on its journey home. And, you know, even though obviously the church is never going to go down, the idea of lifeboats, though, does kind of play a role in this somehow for me, where in certain parts of the journey, there's going to be rougher waters. Right. And like the Latino population for me is kind of a little bit of that lifeboat in a sense. It's like it doesn't matter where we made the lifeboat or whether or not you were involved in its construction, but the fact that it can help all of us kind of get to where we're going. Right. And I think that's the part that is interesting about how other people who may not be themselves Latino can participate in this because ultimately it's important for everybody. That's right. You know, if, if someone were to tell me, and, and I said this before, that the future of the Catholic Church in America and beyond, but if the, in America itself, if it rests in the hands and on the shoulders of Costa Rican or Filipino or South African um, immigrants and demographics, we would support those demographics we'd be all in we'd be all in because that's we're not here to ensure a healthy latino segment of the church in the future we want a healthy church period yeah i love what archbishop gomez says about it too he talks about it uh latino population being the spiritual heirs of san juan diego i've used that in a number of my own talks because and it's true it's like hey this thing started 600 years ago whatever it was in mexico but who's like who are you to say it stopped you know what i mean right. and it's like we maybe haven't completed that mission that san juan diego was called to and there is another america that you could still say requires maybe a little bit of evangelization that's right you know and i feel you know god certainly plays a big game mm -hmm. you know i think it's a good way to put it yeah he, he plays a big game and he and he obviously plays uh long term right he, he plays a long game I think Archbishop Gomez wisely is stating that what's something that started 500 years ago, it'd be, uh, I think, small-minded to think that it stopped, right? And now we get to pick up our own torch and, and, and look at it from and call is trying to play a big game as well. This is a big problem, and we get it. We're a small organization that's stepping into an arena that's on a massive scale, right? How do you ensure the vibrancy of a faith in a country for the future? But I feel like if you don't play a big game, then what's your role in all this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. What tell us a little bit about you? Like, when, what's your, your your background spiritually? When did you first kind of recognize, hey man, I'm Catholic and I want to kind of live this experience in all walks of facets of my life? Is that something that was very early on for you that was just part of your identity, or did you, like other people, maybe have a, a more of a conversion experience that kind of led you to want to be more serious about what you believe? Sure, I think less so. It was I was brought up in an environment that was heavily it was very heavy on the faith side. My mm. mom always brought faith into the equation. I think not so much the Catholic side um, yet by, by way of orthodoxy or just be, you know, acknowledging the, the multiple facets of what it is to be uh, an active Catholic, right? But from the faith side, I grew up in an environment where it was always part of the conversation. You know, I, I think at a, we laugh when I was four, I wanted to be the Pope, oh, right? Really? Yeah, I wanted to be the Pope for 
for right. whatever the reason, right? Set your sights right at the top. That's yeah. right. And Even though that's kind of the bottom, right? So at it, least if you ask him. That's, yeah. a, that's a good point, yeah. right? Yeah, I think he'd fight you on that mm -hmm. top one. Um, and it wasn't, I was always searching for something. And I think I was always searching to expand my faith so much so that my older brother at one point opted to convert to the Baptist church, right? Mm -hmm. so he, he was a born again Christian. And I would go to a lot of services with them. And I found a lot of beauty in a lot of the stuff that they did, sure. right? So much, and we'd go to conferences and you know, they, they, they do the, you know, you remember when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for me, it was December 27, 1997. I remember that clearly, but it was interesting that all of that was, was preparing me to really embrace my faith um, in, in my adult years when I met my, my wife, Diana. I met my wife in 2006. And Diana, you, you've met her before, right? She's unapologetically Catholic. And that prompted me mm. to really start reading into it and looking into it. I'm an English undergrad, so I love to read. So I started really diving into it. And and I think we took it upon ourselves to build a a marriage surrounded and engulfed by Christ, right? Uh, we do, To this day. And that she was really the catalyst to me Falling in love, not more with my faith. I've always been in, in, in love with my faith and with Christ, but falling in love with my religion as a mm. Catholic, right? Yeah. Was there any, ever a moment then in your younger years where there was some tension between the maybe the more evangelical strain, the kind of Baptist experience, and what what you historically may have had? Were you born into the Catholic Church? Or I was. You were. So yeah. was there ever a, a dynamic where this kind of fresh experience of fire and evangelism and whatever and was kind of at odds with this or was it always just like hey i'm just here now but maybe next week i could be in a church or yeah yeah you know i, I would i went i went for my brother right my older brother and i think that i wanted to be a part of what he was a part of right as a younger brother you always want to be around i'm a younger brother too right? you want to be around big brother and but I, I was still at a point in my life where i can make my own decisions and i can discern for myself and it you know it's interesting it never one never encroached on the other. I thought this is a really cool thing that I'm exposed to here. And then, um, my brother wanted me to go with him, right? And my mom, God bless her, she would tell my brother, listen, if you want to convert, you convert so long as you're following Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's what you want to do, that's no reservations here. I mean, my parents were very active in in the Encuentros Misioneros movement, the encounter missionary encounters movement. They were part of... Um, um, encuentros matrimoniales, right? Um, matrimonial encounters. So they, they were, they've always been active, but they never got in the way of him exploring his own faith, nor did they with, with me. But with me, it was never something that I thought was, it was neither an either or proposition. Mm. It was almost complimentary too, right? Part of what I saw in the evangelical movement, uh, it affirmed and strengthened my belief in my Catholic faith, you know? How so? You know, there is... I'm in real estate, so obviously I have a lot of, I place a lot of value on tangible things, things that are, things that you can touch, things that you can feel, things that are lasting, right? And for one reason or another, the vibrancy, the fire that you mentioned um, that's found in evangelical churches led me to appreciate a little bit more, I don't want to say the stoicism of, of, of the Catholic Church, I want to, I want to say more so the reverence with mm -hmm. which that the Catholic Church takes on their, you know, it's almost like a parent, right? Some younger churches mimic younger, younger kids or adolescents, right? They're trying to get out there and make, you know, make a splash. Whereas 
the Catholic Church is a very stable grandfather in that stating. I get it. I've been there. I've seen it. You know, go through your emotions. I'll always be here. There's always there's also something deeply theological about that principle too, because what the church teaches, and not just the church, other denominations perhaps, but the church teaches that we are matter and spirit, mm. right? That we are, and that God created both, and that both are good. And so when we think of things like ritual, mm. like you know, altars, incense, vestments, all of these things, they can be a way to draw us closer to God. And ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, well, why do they exist, right? Why are they part of this spiritual experience if, if not for a way to kind of bring all of us completely, you know, closer to him. So I've always, I've I had a similar experience with you that than you had in terms of really looking at it, in my case, never practicing it myself, but all, but having a lot of very close family and, and friends who were evangelical or Protestant and the great richness of their, um, you know, spiritual life, the fervor, just the, the love of scripture, but the absence of some of these other, mm-hmm. you know, elements and, and a certain highlighting that by kind of being with them, it makes for me that like, oh, wow, like I never almost appreciated as much that these things were part of my religious experience, but how much I'd miss them if they were gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Even though you, 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 you shouldn't focus those as an, on those as an end in themselves, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, they're kind of part of that. And I think that there's a, a reason why, because theologically, you know, we're both spirit and, and matter. That's right. That's right. I, you know, it's, it's been a learning process, Charlie. A lot of this, and I, I'm a very mediocre Catholic, you know, I would say, you Pick know. a number. Yeah. God is an infinite, infinite genius, right? And he has a purpose in, in he, you know, he, he loves all his, all the products of his creation, right? There's just something to be said, I think, to the staying power of the Catholic Church for me. There's something to be said about the sacrifices that have been made through millennia now uh, to be a part of that church. And what what really turned the corner for me is that, as you remember, in, in the 2000s, the whole, uh, the scandals with the church and whatnot. And I was having a conversation with a priest, mm-hmm. a friend of, of Diana and I. And I said, you know, the church is the church that. And he stopped me and he said, who's the church? And I said, well, I try to give some sort of uh, explanation. He said, no, no, no you stop. He said, you're the church guy. Mm-hmm. You're the church, mm-hmm. right? So if the church this, the church that, no, you're the church. You, you are as, the church is as strong as you are, right? And the church is as vibrant as you as you would like to be and you choose to be. And that flipped the switch for me, right? And and it's that wasn't the moment, but I think it's just, it's been a slow and steady as most things with life. It's just been growing over time. And that's the way that God works, right? He's yeah. like, he slowly kind of unfurls stuff. And most of the time he actually tells us in scripture because we're not ready for it otherwise, right? Jesus says, there's so much I want to show you, but you're not ready to hear it yet. That's right. And that's how we are in our lives. Certainly for me as well. It's like a slow kind of unfurling where you find yourself, you know, even like we just said, we've known each other for five, six years. It doesn't seem like that long, mm-hmm. but it's a slow process where you find yourself looking back and going, wow, like I've come a long way. You've shown me a lot. You've guided me in a lot of, uh, you know, in, in this. And you almost haven't perceived it, but yet you're you're there. You're sort of where you are, right? Mm-hmm. In your reading that you talked about, you like to read uh, English major. I was one too for two weeks. Nice. <laughs> and then I opted on communications, which was whatever, perhaps even more generic at, at that time. But I always wanted to be a writer as well. 
Awesome. And, and love to read. But was there any anything specific that you read? I know there's never like that moment, mm-hmm. like you said, it's not a turning moment, but mm-hmm. or, a, or a particular writer or just a, a, a genre, maybe something that you can think like this was important in terms of my spiritual development. For reasons different than you, than you may think, I, I studied Hemingway extensively. Mm. Um, I read a lot of Latin American writers, Octavio Paz. You know, obviously, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, a lot sure. of, you know, Juan Rulfo and Carlos Fuentes and a lot of the big uh, kind of like members of the of the literary canon. And it wasn't what I read there that led me to, to maybe strengthen my faith. It was the absence of faith and it was the ongoing questioning in their writing and in their prose. Interesting. That led that are firm, holy smokes, great writers, maybe obviously a lot of them admittedly agnostic or atheist. And there is a palpable gap in their lives, right? So it, w- it was kind of, I learned by understanding negative space as opposed to understanding what's on that's the wall, amazing. right? Amazing. And um, because that's, I was, that was my my universe, right? Is reading these, these guys. I've always, you know, I've read a lot since then and I've read, you know, different encyclicums and all that good stuff. I think Pope Benedict is brilliant. And I think he's he's a beautiful writer and communicator of his faith. I think that there's a lot of very beautiful things that Archbishop Gomez has written on immigration as well, right? But at the end of the day, I felt more impacted by what was missing in these writers' life than what I was gaining. It's an unfair comparison, right? No, but, not at all. I think it's actually yeah. really interesting. I mean, it, it reminds us of something. My brother, who's who, who you know is a, a Benedictine priest, he um, has this little phrase he always tells me about God being frugal. Mm. He doesn't waste anything, right? So even, you know, for me, it would have been maybe the writings of Sartre or Camus or these guys, mm. these existentialists that I was so in love with when I was younger. And yet you're right. It was like, well, wait a minute, but something's missing. These guys at the end of their story, they're still searching a lot of times they're kind of like, you know, there's a malaise, there's like a little bit of a of a hopelessness in, cer- in certain cases. And even though they don't identify in some way to you as the reader, it kind of points, well, there's probably something more. Right. I mean, Camus, right? He wrote The Stranger, sure. right? And Camus makes me sad, right? I read that book and I, and he's part of the whole existentialist movement. And Dan, we may be veering, but it's interesting to Not us, right? Not at all. <laughs> this is, the whole show's a veer. That's right. And Camus... He wrote that book and everyone made such a huge deal about it. I mean, it's, he's always, he's, I think, the youngest at the time, the youngest Nobel laureate um, in oh, history. Yeah, he's, oh, wow. I think he won at 45. Wow. Died a couple years later in a car accident, right? Very young. And I look back at that book and in him making the huge statement with, of, does it really matter? You know, the, he, this person killed someone. And he didn't feel anything. So is there anything there to feel, right? Most people would read that. And yeah, you can you can psychoanalyze the, the crap out of it, right? But push comes to shove. This writer also had a huge want for something because he kept on going back to it. Well, it doesn't really matter, right? And I feel sad. You know, he passed away at the very top of his profession, right? Something people dream of achieving. And, I, and part of me feels that I pray to God that his last moments weren't uh, that none of it, none of it mattered, mm. that it was empty, right? Uh, Albert Camus, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. My friend uh, Jimmy Aiken, who's an apologist, probably my friend is a little too generous. I know him, and he knows me. 
Um, but he's a, he's a really good guy, super talented apologist, kind of a genius. And he always, he's the person who first introduced me the idea that you could pray for something that happened in the past. Hmm. So a little prayer for Albert Camus that he, he actually, uh, you know, came to faith maybe at the last moment, but you're right. It's, it's a bit of, um, that kind of pessimism or that lack of hope can also point us to, you know, to different things, you know, Pontius Pilate and the gospels, what is truth, right? He's saying, I don't know what you're, you know, you could, you could interpret it as saying like, I don't, you know, this doesn't matter. This idea of truth doesn't even matter. And if you have that worldview, it's, it can be a pretty hopeless kind of dry, you know, place to live. Yeah. And ultimately that in and of itself can point you to something higher. Yeah. And even in business too, right? The end in and of itself is just producing for the sake of producing, you know, generating money or wealth or success in and of itself. It's so baseless. And and I think that's something that I've learned in the last couple of years um, is that no amount of wealth can cover, can even mimic what it is to have a full heart in the Jesus context, right? Mm. And and that's something to, to really, I mean, I'm an MBA, so you're surrounded and you're trained to go out there and, and be transactional and, and always look to grow things. And that's my nature, right? But end of the day, and I, and I talk to this about this to my wife all the time, if I pass away with only a business to show for it, that's not enough, not for me at least, right? There's a way to revere God even in business as well. Sure. And it, and it should be. So much of, of your time is engulfed by it, right? You should revere God in, in all way, shape, and form and throughout every minute of your day. But it, it's not enough, right? How does how does a guy who's into Camus and Hemingway and Gabriel Garcia Marquez get into real estate? Yeah. I'm interested in that yeah. segue. My, my father in Mexico, my dad met my mom in one of his businesses. He was 10 years her senior. Um, he always had a really good mind for business, uh, very technical operating operations type of CO type of guy. He built a sizable business out there um, that went under in the 80s. And he we wanted to start over, so we came to the States. And he went into real estate, I think, for the entrepreneurial aspect of it, residential real estate. And, and I think for him specifically, that was a tough order, right? Being operations-driven in a very sales and marketing type of environment is a difficult shift of the gears being very heady and very articulate and very self-conscious about vocabulary as my dad is my dad and my mom speak like university level spanish it's beautiful the way they speak spanish to now have to learn an industry specific if not to say esoteric language in english very difficult so we struggled um we struggled through my my father's learning you know uh, growing pains in the industry. And I vowed never to be a part of residential real estate or real estate for that matter. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to see it. I thought it was the worst thing that could happen to anyone. Right. And as, as life tends to, you know, as God tends to joke with you from time to time, I found myself, um, out of undergrad, I took a job. Um, I helped my dad out a little bit with his residential brokerage. Um, the recession hit. I, then I took a job with a boutique management consulting firm. What'd you study in school? Uh, undergrad literature okay, and English at UC Irvine, and then went on to Pepperdine for an MBA in marketing. In marketing, got it, okay. It's a good baseline, good storytelling and marketing Total, baseline. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think it's a, more, more kids should, should study literature or communications. I think it would help them tremendously. Um, 